First, NBC's Jeff Schell was fired for sexual harassment, and then Tucker Carlson was fired, and then Don Lemon was fired. And you kind of get this sense walking into White House Correspondence Center weekend that, you know, this industry is going through a reckoning and it's, it's rattling everyone in it. Hello, and welcome to The Interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the Editor-in-Chief of Mediaite. We've got a great show for you this week. After probably the craziest month in news on the media beat for years, I spoke with Sarah Fisher, one of the best media reporters in the business. Sarah is a senior media reporter at Axios. Her weekly newsletter, Axios Media Trends, is a must-read. And she's also a media analyst for CNN, where she appears on air frequently. I called up Sarah in Brazil, where she is covering a conference, shortly after both of us were down in Washington, D.C. for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. We discussed highlights from the weekend, the ousters of Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon from their respective networks, what those upheavals mean for the cable news industry, and the future of digital media in the wake of the collapse of BuzzFeed News and the impending bankruptcy of Vice. Sarah, thanks for so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. I should let all of our listeners know, uh, Sarah and I ran into each other down in D.C. over the weekend for the White House Correspondents Dinner, which is an exhausting three-day affair with a dizzying amount of parties. Did you enjoy the weekend? Do you, do you see that as like a good trip to drum up sources? Oh, yeah. I definitely enjoyed it, especially because... It's an opportunity for me to see a lot of my own colleagues. Like oftentimes I'm on the road and I don't get to spend a lot of time with them. So just to have an opportunity to have a drink with them and see how they're doing and catch up, like that's the most fun part of the weekend. And then reconnecting with old colleagues who have since moved on to new outlets, running into them throughout the weekend is so fun. That's awesome. Did you have a fun time? Yeah, I had a great time. It feels like there are a lot, there were a lot more parties this year. And I was also a little bit more selective. So I, I don't think I wiped myself out too much, which has been an issue in previous years. Yeah, that's definitely the way to do it. I did not go that route. I <laughs> got on a scooter and scooted from every single party because I wanted to just get a sense of what everyone was doing. But then I only got to spend like 20 minutes at each. Right. So, you know, there's no one right way to do it as long as you're having a good time. What did you think was like the overarching message from from this year's White House Correspondents' Dinner? Oh, that's a good question. I think there is definitely a clear sense of a priority around press freedoms globally, especially with Evan Gershkovich being mentioned by the president in his speech. And you could tell that the rallying around Gershkovich, Gershkovich was clear and present You know, at every party. People from the Washington Post wearing pins, mm. uh, people, you know, changing their profile pictures. So that was, I think, a big theme. I think the other big theme is that we were coming off of a crazy week in cable news where, you know, uh, first NBC CEO, NBCU CEO Jeff Schell was fired for sexual harassment, and then Tucker Carlson was fired, and then Don Lemon was fired. And you kind of get this sense walking into White House Correspondence Center weekend that, you know, this industry is going through a reckoning, and it's it's rattling everyone in it. So that was the other big takeaway. Did you see Don Lemon at the UTA party? I saw him briefly, but I didn't speak with him, but he looked like he was in good spirits. And, you know, he did. that was the case because this is a very small industry. Everyone's going to have to work together at some point or another. And, you know, it's good that people can continue to get along after tough times. 
it's interesting to see this week how different major cable news hosts deal with the fallout from their own firings, right? Because I'm always curious to see, okay, well, do you lay low for a while or do you get back out there? And we saw with both Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson this week, Tucker Carlson releasing a video about his ouster and then Don Lemon showing up at the UTA party and and basically, you know, being a man about town again. It's very interesting to see both of those those stars out there. Yes. And you know who's so classy? Who? Brian Stelter. Brian Stelter has more fans now than ever before within the industry. He is breaking a ton of news for all sorts of different outlets. True. He shows up. He's mingling with people. Everyone seems excited for him, excited to see his success. He's writing a book. He's doing so much. I mean, that, to me, he has turned what was a very confusing and complicated time in his career to a moment to be proud of. And it was awesome to see him shining last weekend during the dinner. And, you know, I also find I kind of like reading him in Vanity Fair. He's able to write with a little more voice, and I'm kind of enjoying that style from him. I do want to talk about these big ousters that we've seen in the last week. Let's start with Tucker. There have been a million different theories for why Tucker Carlson, the top-rated host in cable news, was abruptly and shockingly fired by Fox News last Monday. Everything from the fallout from the Dominion defamation suit to comments that he made about Fox News executives to his opposition to the Ukraine war. Do you have a a theory yourself based on your own reporting about why he was let go? I reported that it was a combination of a bunch of different factors. Some of the information that came out in pretrial discovery that was redacted that multiple outlets have reported indicated Tucker Carlson was speaking ill of colleagues and management using the C word to describe one female colleague. I think that was one of the factors. And remember, one of the things my sources noted to me was, uh, you know, news outlets are really trying to push to get some of this stuff unredacted. So you don't know at any time when this stuff that for now is shielded could become public. I think the Abby Grossberg lawsuit her threatening to release tapes that show proof that Fox News hosts were engaging with Trump allies and understood that they did not have proof of the defamatory claims they're making about Dominion is pretty damning. I don't know what else is on those tapes, but Abby Grossberg says she has 90 of them. So you can imagine there could be other things in them that implicate Carlson or other hosts. And then lastly, if somebody like Abby Grossberg comes out with tapes, Who's to say that there isn't another big shoe to drop? And if you're the Murdochs, you have a culmination of problems tied to one specific person. If you get rid of this one person, he's so big and so massive, you likely can push back any pressure from shareholders or others to get rid of senior management or other executives. And so for them, I think this is like a logical step. But it was a bunch of different factors that led to it. I do think the some of the materials that were redacted that management learned about over the weekend, I believe it was Friday, likely had something, or right ahead of the trial, sorry, likely had something to do with it. But I don't know that that was the only thing. Yeah, it's funny. I was I remember the, the first day this broke, I start calling a bunch of different sources. And I'm asking around it. Every single person is giving a different reason for why he was ousted. And it I think it became clear over the course of the week that it wasn't just one thing. And actually, this one Fox News source, I thought put it best. Sometimes a relationship ends because, you know, one person cheats on the other person. And it's this big blow up and, and the relationship ends. Sometimes 
it's just a bunch of different things and one person gets the ick and it's over. And they were like, it seems like Rupert Murdoch just got the ick. And that's, you know, probably a simplistic way of putting it, but it does seem like there's just an, there was an enormous amount of problems around Tucker Carlson and a way to relieve that pressure and to stop these problems for Rupert Murdoch was to just get rid of him. But it's created a new problem for Fox, the ratings. I'm sure you've seen this, but Fox News on Friday came dangerously close in Tucker Carlson's time slot to dipping below 1 million viewers, which is pretty shocking for for this era of Fox News. What do you make of that? Do you think that's a lasting problem that the network's going to have? No. I always thought that Fox's fear of viewers running to Newsmax was itself even a little bit strange, not because it's not going to happen for a short period of time, sure, but because Fox just has so much power, resources to its advantage that I think it's eventually going to be able to figure out how to put a new rising star in that place and gain at least some of that viewership back. And the price you pay for keeping Tucker Carlson, I guess this is a calculation that they made, is not as great as what you get for getting rid of him, right? And relieving some of that shareholder pressure and relieving some of potentially the legal risk ahead of the Smartmatic suit. So I think they'll be able to figure it out. They'll find someone. Remember, when Bill O'Reilly left that spot, it wasn't like Tucker Carlson was a thing then. Like, he made himself a thing. I think the question becomes, will there ever be anyone that's able to command that type of viewership by just telling the truth? Mm. And that is the the big question mark. I don't think that Fox is going to put a straight-laced reporter in that slot, don't get me wrong. But what is the degree at which you can be salacious, kind of conspiratorial, kind of bending the facts to lure viewers without crossing the line? I think we now know that there is a line that's been crossed with Tucker Carlson. Whoever it is that they bring in is going to have to figure out where that is. And it's, I feel bad saying it because it should just be that the line is to tell the truth at all times. But clearly, that's just not how Fox works. Right. I still, I still remember back in 2020 when we had a very similar dynamic. Fox News viewers were outraged that the network had called Arizona for Joe Biden. They were fleeing Fox News in droves to Trumpier alternatives like Newsmax. And I remember thinking, this isn't going to last because watch Fox News and watch Newsmax. One is a brand, an incredibly a highly profitable, valuable brand that has been decades in the making. And the other is kind of a rinky-dink fringe cable news network. Like at a certain point, those viewers are going to cool off and they're going to return to Fox News. I just can't imagine that this is that this controversy is going to have a lasting damage to Fox News, especially if they uh, replace Tucker Carlson with someone who his audience is fine with like a Jesse Waters. My fear is just that in the current panic that Fox News is facing, which is very similar to the panic they had after the 2020 election, that they would resort to some of the more extreme remedies they did back in 2020 in order to claw back those viewers. Do you have any fear of that sort of thing happening? Um, I think that moving forward, they're going to be much more careful about what type of people they put on their air and what allegations they make. They don't want to end up with any more defamation suits. But I think that they're going to be able to figure out a personality, probably a Jesse Waters type, who can thread the needle pretty well in being just edgy enough, (laughs) salacious enough, that they'll be able to gain back those viewers from Newsmax, 
but not quite over the top to the point where Fox has another legal headache on its hands. Well, you know, the funny thing is, sure, Tucker Carlson got serious ratings, big audience. But at the end of the day, he was only doing, you know, 500,000 more viewers than Sean Hannity. And Sean Hannity comes without the massive, massive headaches that Tucker Carlson does. And I could very much picture Jesse Waters filling in that 8 p.m. slot and continuing to deliver, you know, two and a half, three million viewers a night without Senate Republicans having to issue statements about Fox News hosts saying that they're lying about you know, the Capitol riot and all the legal threats that came along with Tucker Carlson. So it, it'll be interesting to watch that. As far as Tucker Carlson goes, what do you think is next for him? I assume one of two things. I think he either goes the rumble right. route, which is kind of Glenn Greenwald just left Substack to join Locals, which is Rumble's like subscription uh, platform. He does a show on Rumble. I think that there's a lot of momentum in that platform. So, and, and Tucker will feel like he can speak freely to his, you know, video message that he put out the other day. Or he goes the Bill O'Reilly route, which is very lucrative. I think Bill O'Reilly makes like $30 million yep, a year yep. or something, where you basically charge subscriptions for your insights. And Bill O'Reilly still appears on, you know, News Nation. He's not totally uh, shunned out of the media world. It could go one of two ways for Carlson. I still think that Tucker Carlson has a pretty bright commercial career ahead of him. He's developed such a following, a loyal following, that he'll be able to attract a ton of viewers or listeners or you know readers, wherever it is that he goes. So I don't know. Tucker Carlson, I think, will do just fine. And by the way, I think Fox will do just fine without Tucker Carlson, but it feels seismic right, right. now. Right. It feels seismic right now, but I expect that Tucker will continue to command a massive audience and Fox News is going to have a momentary blip that they'll recover from, especially once the, the 2024 election starts getting into full swing. I, I think the question probably is now, how much is Fox News going to try and enforce a non-compete in their severance package to Tucker Carlson? Are they going to, I imagine they're going to tie that to a big payout to him. And how much is he going to be willing to accept a payout to not go and work for, for some of Fox's competition? Though there isn't really an, an outlet besides the Daily Wire, I'd say, that would be able to attract someone like Tucker. Like, I don't think Newsmax is going to be able to afford him, and I certainly don't think OAN uh, is going to afford him. So I, I'd imagine it's going to be an independent venture. Yeah, although Newsmax can always raise money, I mean, True. privately owned, right. you know, if they needed him, they could do it. Uh, I have no idea. I think, though, that Tucker Carlson wherever he does land next, like he will import a bunch of those viewers from Fox. I think Fox knows that. And so they are going to have to brace for it. But the important thing to remember is let's say Tucker does go to Rumble or Daily Wire or one of these places. That does not necessarily mean that he's hosting a live show in the 8 p.m. hour, meaning it, if Tucker goes, it's not like he's necessarily, unless he were to go do an 8 p.m. hour at Newsmax, is going to force a trade-off between viewers. So it could all end up that Fox doesn't end up losing that many viewers at all, and Tucker continues to have a huge audience. Like, it could end up almost, I hate to even say it like this, but like a win-win for <laughs> right. both. Win-win and, and a loss for us. Now, uh, Don Lemon, CNN, less confounding situation, I would say. What is your, your read on why he was let go from the network? He announced it about an hour after Tucker Carlson's ouster was announced uh, last Monday. 
Yeah. And just a quick follow-up on the last thing you just said about like lost right. for us. Like the one thing that I think has gotten lost in this story, there are definitely real reporters at Fox News. I am friends mm. with them. Like they are really smart, good people who work at that network. If anything, this is a huge loss for them and the Fox News viewers because I felt as though this clouded some of the great work that they were doing. It overshadowed it. And you could that's almost a shame. hear the sigh of relief from within Fox News from I've spoken to people on the news side of Fox who were just sick and tired of having to answer for the coverage that Tucker Carlson did, whether it was his stuff about January 6th, the vaccine coverage. It felt like the opposition sometimes to what he was doing was so strong that it would even like bleed out onto, onto the air. So I can imagine a lot of people on the news side of Fox are now pretty relieved that they can do their jobs without interference from the most watched person on that, on that network. Totally. That's definitely the sense that I get to. To your question about Don Lemon, I think a series of small blunders over uh, several months led to a feeling that, you know, it wasn't working out in the morning hours for him. You know, when Don was in the primetime hour, he could be Don, you know, and he's a really charismatic um, thinker and person. Uh, And I think in the morning, you know, they wanted this show to be a little bit more, uh, you know, straight newsed, voicey with chemistry between the hosts. And so if it's not really working out in the morning, you know, one thing I had heard from a source is that like internally it was becoming hard to sell and market the show in part because the chemistry was off, the ratings weren't good. So if it's not working out commercially, you know, you get to a point where you have to think, all right, is it worth the headaches that come with it? And I don't get the sense that there's a ton of hard feelings. Like I was with folks from CNN all weekend who are very sad to see Don Lemon go. And we're sad to see him go because they'd worked with him for 17 years and he was a good colleague. But I also think, you know, you can't really deny the fact that there was a bunch of blunders that maybe suggested this wasn't totally the right fit. So I think that's why all this happened. I think Don will come out in a good scenario. He's a skilled broadcaster. He's got a big personality. He'll do okay. And I think CNN's going to have to think about who and what they do with that morning show. Do they add a third host? I mean, Poppy and Caitlin are amazing and they could definitely hold it down just the two of them. But, you know, they do tons of special projects and reporting. Poppy's out interviewing Jamie Dimon and Kim Kardashian and Caitlin has a sit down with the president next week. Like they might, they might honestly just need a third person to help give them some relief. So I'm curious to see what they do. Do you think there's any chance they keep it just Caitlin and Poppy? I mean, for the time being, yes. But I, I do think like logistically, I just watch. People do not realize how much those two women do. Yeah, seriously. Like Poppy, both of them have major temple interviews like every other day. They are traveling. Like they're doing so, so, so much that it's not that I don't think they could. It's just that the network wants to use them for some of these other big high profile opportunities because they're the best at what they do. And so if they are going to, you know, have Caitlin moderate a town hall with Donald Trump or have Poppy do the, again, the sit down with Jamie Dimon, like they're going to need to have a little bit of cover for when they're traveling or on vacation. So it wouldn't shock me if they eventually get someone in there full time. But for now they've experimented, you know, in the past, even before when Don was officially out, they've had a few, a few people, I think Audie Cornish mm. uh, step in. So maybe they'll have someone uh, go full time. Uh, wouldn't shock me if they did. What do you think's next for Don Lemon, if you could speculate, because he's a li- he's in a little bit of a different case than Tucker, because Tucker Carlson being, you know, an opinion, a right wing opinion talker has this massive audience that he can really take wherever he wants. CNN hosts, I feel like would have a little bit more trouble going out and doing an independent venture. Do you think Don's going to try and land it at another network? 
Oh, he, maybe he could try. I mean, he could also try daytime. Like the thing about Don Lemon is he is, like I said before, he's so charismatic. When you listen to Don Lemon talk, you definitely are very engaged in what he has to say. You're, you're actually listening to him. You know, sometimes you have the TV on in the background. You're not really listening. I've never had that with Don Lemon. So I think he'd be good as like a daytime talk host. I can see him going to MSNBC. Obviously, I can't see him going to Fox. I don't see him going to any of the business networks. So I think for cable, he'd be limited. Mm. But there's so much that Don Lemon could do. I mean, we're now also in this new world where if you have a big personality and you're good at interviews, you're good at talking, like you can have this multi-platform brand that's very powerful. You know, I think about Kara Swisher hosting podcasts and doing onstage events. And, you know, she just does everything. Like someone like Don Lemon could try to structure a contract like that where he's doing a little bit of everything he could try to go to dayside i have no idea where he is headed but i think he is headed for somewhere good we've been speaking candidly about cnn and fox here and you're a media analyst for cnn i'm curious how you approach covering cnn when you have to given that you you are a media analyst for them is that is that ever tricky or is that something that that you find to be to be clear No, not tricky at all. Just like it's not tricky to cover Axios. Right. So I have a policy that I've sort of made up and this is what I use to help govern myself. Any information that I obtain as an employee, I cannot use for my reporting because otherwise I'm leaking company information. Any information that I obtain through real reporting, you know, sources at a company explained it to me, sent me the email, leaked me a note, that's fair game. And so Sometimes with Axios, I will like intentionally sit out of meetings because Mm. I know that if news is to come of them that I'd have to cover, I need to go and source out what happened in that meeting and cover it just like any other reporter would. And the same thing kind of goes for CNN. You know, I will only cover things that I learn as an outsider of the network, not somebody uh, who's a contributor for them. But I will say with CNN, I'm not invited to like a lot of big meetings. So I still actually have to source out a ton of stuff. <laughs> um, like any internal document that's sent that you see me covering or, you know, a layoff announcement, like I'm still calling my sources inside to get that information. It's not like handed to me. Mm. Um, in terms of conflict of interest, I mean, Chris Licht and the CNN team has been so good about just giving me free range. Like right. if I want to talk about Don Lemon getting fired on the air, they'll let me talk about it. You know, anything oh. I... It's never been an issue and it's absolutely never come up. Um, I'm sure that one day that my theory of the case will be tested, but for now, it has not been hard. Like, as long as you just follow journalistic principles, it's pretty simple. I always feel like it's one of those things where it seems really easy until a real scandal happens that sort of the network might disagree with the framing on or something. And then you really have to figure out how to, how to cross that impasse. But to be honest, so far, I, I'm, I find it promising the way the new regime at CNN has allowed for media reporting about the network. When you read Reliable Sources now, which is now helmed by Oliver Darcy, I think it's pretty clear-eyed and that the reporting's pretty straightforward and is the kind of reporting that you'd see in other outlets about CNN. Now, you had a fresh scoop published just before this interview that I wanted to ask about. It shed some more light on the firing of Jeff Schell, the NBCU CEO. Tell us what the news is there. Yes. And quickly, just following up again, yeah. Oliver's doing an incredible job. So good. I'm so impressed day in and day out about how much he accomplishes and still manages to break and doing it fairly. So kudos to Oliver. Um, yeah. So the scoop that I had this morning is that the complaint filed by CNBC's senior international correspondent Hadley Gamble against Jeff Shell to NBCU 
wasn't just about Jeff Shell. It also alleged complicity in fostering a toxic workplace from senior CNBC international executives. It named a few of those executives. One of those executives that was named, the complaint alleges he called uh, gamble the C word. You know, the kind of big picture here is that when we see somebody get fired as a result of a complaint, and that complaint obviously was filed privately, only lawyers can see it, we tend to sort of in our heads try to figure out, like, what does this complaint say? What is in it? And when you peel back the curtain, you know, for my sources, the complaint is not really just about this one person, although one person, Jeff Shell, was fired as a result of it. It's about like a workplace culture is what they're trying to allege. Now, Comcast uh, has not, you know, punished any other executives. It has not said whether or not their investigation has concluded that any of these allegations are true. But you get a sense now of what Gamble is trying to say happened or is the picture she's trying to paint of what's going on there, which is different from just, oh, this one individual harassed me. The last topic I wanted to chat about with you to switch gears here is I wanted to discuss the crisis battering certain digital media outlets, which you've been covering a lot. So BuzzFeed News just shut down. Vice Media is preparing to file for bankruptcy. Tell us about the environment now surrounding these digital media outlets that in the 2000s and the 2010s were these serious media darlings that had these sky-high valuations. Now they're filing for bankruptcy and shutting down. What, what's the environment like? Right now? It's tough. So for many years in the aughts and in the 2010s, these digital media companies, the Voxes and the Vices and the BuzzFeeds of the world, they were able to raise a lot of money. I mean, Vice raised well over a billion dollars. We're talking extraordinary amounts of money. And they did it at these very lofty valuations. And the problem is, in order to justify a valuation when you go to exit the company, meaning when you go to sell it or raise money further down the line, you need to show that the rate of growth has continued as the company matures. And what happened was with all these companies, they weren't able to continue growing at that blockbuster clip because naturally, how could you? You know, it was always, they were always over uh, inflated. And so this was a problem as the big tech companies started to adjust their algorithms to deprioritize news. But it became a really serious problem following the pandemic in part because the ad market slowed down and then inflation. Like one of the things that's really haunting Vice right now is that they have a lot of debt. And when you go to restructure that debt, the interest rates are really high right now. And so buyers are looking at this asset. And it's not that necessarily the business is like completely broken. I mean, they're, you know, just about squeaking by kind of profitable. Some assets aren't and some assets are. They're making about $600 million a year. It's not that it's a non-business. The problem is who wants to buy that business and then be responsible for managing all of that debt? And I think you know, there's also some question of who's responsible for things like outstanding lawsuits against the company. You know, Those become additional costs. And so if you want to exit, if you're vice, it becomes really hard to find a buyer that's A, willing to pay an enormous valuation that you once had and be willing to take on all of your extra debt, et cetera. And, and for these other media companies, you know, the BuzzFeeds of the world, the Voxes of the world, you know, they're not all the same. They all have very different and unique challenges. But I will say the one through line is that they all just raise so much money at these really lofty valuations. 
And you'll see, we just don't do that anymore in digital media. I mean, when Axios launched, our Series A was $10 million. You know, Semaphore raised a $5 million safe. Like, I think, you know, these companies are raising a few million here and there. And so they're doing that to protect themselves. So that way they don't have to back into these ridiculous valuations later down the line and become diluted and all that sort of thing. The one outlier is the messenger. They just raised $50 million, (laughs) um, which is a lot uh, ahead of their launch on May 15th. So I'm curious to see how that goes. I just laughed because I was literally right before this interview, I was looking at the messenger and I was looking at their projections. Yes. And I think you you had a, a piece in it in your newsletter. I'm reading this and it like looks like that they want to have a newsroom that is almost 400 people deep, 20 people covering health and wellness and 100 people covering politics and 100 people calling, covering general news. The number two to Jimmy Finkelstein, who's starting the site, is also saying that they're going to get 100 million uniques a month and $100 million in revenue after the first year, which is... An absolutely, forgive me for being blunt, but an absolutely insane projection. And it does feel a little bit like the messenger, whether or not this is just a sales pitch, is sleepwalking into the mistake that these other properties made by being too ambitious with their growth and not realizing that the places that launched in 2010 and that are surviving to this day are the places that stayed pretty nimble and small and didn't bet on this massive expansion and expect the revenue to follow. I agree with that. I mean, a lot of the companies that started niche were able to expand slowly into other verticals once they developed authority in what it is that they cover. And that was uh, that allowed them to minimize risk. The go big or go home strategy is one sort of of the past. So it's interesting to see the messenger do it. I'd say one thing, though, to keep in mind about the messenger is Jimmy Finkelstein and Richard Beckman are serious executors. Like they have, I I mean, I talked to Richard for this piece that I wrote. They have an answer to every question and they're detailed answers. You know, I'm asking specific questions like, how are you going to monetize your video? When do you expect, do you think you're ever going to license it? Is it a pre-roll play? How are you going to sell that? I mean, they actually have answers. So the one thing I will say about the messenger is I agree. It is very lofty goals and you know, 100 million in revenue in 2024 in their second year of operations is like absolutely extraordinary. It's it feels like it's impossible, <laughs> but at the same time, it's not like they're walking blind into it. They have a plan for how they want to get there. A lot of it involves sort of like arbitrage. You know, win the news, get there fast, play it straight, get the traffic revenue, sell programmatic against it. It's like very much what they did against the hit with the hill. But they have a plan. So I'm curious to see how it bears out. I will say, to their credit, like they've actually hired a, a lot of people. And these aren't just like no-name people. I mean, I reported this morning that they hired you know, the athletics editorial director as their head of sports. They uh, hired the editor-in-chief of Self Magazine as their editor for health and wellness. Like They hired the former Entertainment Weekly editor as their entertainment editor. So these are real smart people tenured journalists that they're bringing in the fold. I just think the question of when it comes together, are they able to pull off the numbers that they set and the expectations that they set? We shall see. They told me though, Aiden, that they don't plan to raise any more money. So that clearly indicates that they're not trying to have this new sprawling newsroom grow on the backs of, uh, you know, borrowed money forever. Like they want to eventually be able to be self-sustaining. Just looking at all of the properties that we've spoken about right now, 
Do you think that there is one viable model for digital media going forward? Is it the way Axios launched and grew and sold you know, recently to Cox for $525 million? Is that the, the model for digital media going forward? I don't know that there's one model, but I think that mm. the thing that has become clear is that the markets right now favor businesses that are profitable uh, or at least are showing clear signs of path to profit. And so this idea that you're going to launch and pour a bunch of capital into something and not expect profit for a few years until after you accrue an audience, I think that idea is kind of dead. I think you need to have a real business model from the start. I think one thing that seems to be working is if you can get really good subject matter experts when it comes to news or really engaged per- engaging personalities when it comes to passion media, passion media being like beauty or health or you know sports, whatever, uh, if you can get the best of the best talent and you can come up with a responsible business model to monetize that, once you develop a reputation for being able to do that well and with authority, it gives you license to expand into other things. And slowly over time, you can build a big portfolio. That's kind of, by the way, it's kind of how Vox Media did it. Like all of their brands are very authoritative. Um, I think the key though is understanding which brands or which verticals are we going to move into that may never have a profit, but they matter to us in different ways. And how are we going to supplement them? Like you have to have a plan for that move, you know, when you're expanding and you also have to have a plan for how are we going to monetize each and every one of the ventures that we go into upfront. So it might be, for example, critical that you cover China, but China is so hard to sell ads against because brands, big companies don't want to have to have that conversation. So how are you going to start a company by covering a bunch of verticals that there is a ton of sponsorship money around, maybe things like cybersecurity or energy, so that one day you can launch China and not have to worry about it. You just have to be really thoughtful and pragmatic. I don't think this general traffic play is going to be easy for anyone. And that's why, by the way, I think the messenger is sort of hedging their bets. Yes, they have general news and politics, and they do plan to sell sort of like programmatic around a lot of that content, but they're also launching like nine separate niche verticals led by subject matter experts that they can one day like sell subscriptions around maybe or sell events around. I think that's kind of the future. Right. Sarah Fisher, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Sarah Fisher on Mediaite.com. 